0: We're now going to read God's Word together, and we're reading this morning from the book of Judges. I'm going to spend a little time thinking about one of the characters we're actually going to be looking at when we do the holiday club, which is Samson. Here's the beginning of the story of Samson from Judges chapter 13. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me, he looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I, I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then drink no wine or fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who was to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife and when he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink any wine or fermented drink nor anything, eat anything unclean. She must do everything that I have commanded her. Manoah said to the Lord, uh, we would like you to stay until we prepare a, a young goat for you. Then the angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Mano- Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, "'What is your name so that we may honor you "'when your word comes true?' "'He replied, "'Why do you ask my name? "'It's beyond understanding.' "'Then Manoah took a young goat "'together with a green offering "'and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. "'And the Lord did an amazing thing "'while Manoah and his wife watched "'as the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven.' the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Dan, between Zorah. An Ishtat Amen. And thanks be to God for His word. I want it take at least a couple of weeks to talk about about Sam, Samson, God's strong man. And I, I wonder, it's, it's one of those, those stories that you sort of vaguely remember doing in Sunday school, maybe. Or when you pick up the children's Bible, it's got a, a couple of pages about the story of Samson, the hero with the long hair. The guy with the super strength that fought for God. About all we can remember of the story there often is that Delilah cut his hair, he lost his strength, got captured by the Philistines. And then at the end he gets his strength back and pulls the walls down and the roof comes down on the Philistines. That's about all you can remember. Am I about right? Something like that. Even at that. Well, can I encourage you? It's an absolutely terrific story. Come on to later some of the problems with it. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. Have a look at it this week. Read through the story in the book of Judges. But I want to give you just a little bit of context to the story, because we're jumping in chapter 13 of the book. The book of Judges is a fantastic storybook. It's got the story of Gideon that fought the Midianites. It's got the story of some folk you will not have heard of, Ehud the left-handed, There's a a guy that might be your hero. Deborah and Barak, and a fantastic story about jail who takes a tent peg and smashes a guy's head in with it. And if that is an incentive to read a gripping story, I don't know what is. But it is also, as exciting as it is, one of the most depressing books in the whole of the Bible. The time it's set is a time after Moses has brought children of Israel out of the promise, out, out of Egypt into the promised land. That's the story that's told in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the sixth book of the Bible tells the story of Joshua bringing the people into the promised land and beginning the conquest of that land. And the book of Judges, the seventh book, follows that story. And the book of Judges has a number of sections within it, but they all follow same pattern. The pattern goes like this. The people sin, and because they sin, God's blessing is removed from them, and their enemies oppress them, and then the people realize that they're in trouble, and they repent, and they call out to the Lord, and the Lord sends a judge to rescue them. Now, the judges aren't guys with wigs that sit in courtrooms. The judges are they're really warlords that come to lead them in battle. And that's the pattern of the book of Judges. The problem is the cycle keeps repeating. They never learn. And it's worse than that because as you read it, the cycle gets worse and worse, and worse. Each generation gets further and further away from God. Each time they cry out to the Lord, their repentance is less and less sincere. And each time God sends a judge, the judge himself starts doing the right things and then screws up until the judges just get more and more violent and more and more awful until we come to the worst of all the judges, which is Samson. You'll see it in the first verse of the passage we read, where it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They just stopped recognizing God altogether. They were doing wrong, and God saw that it was wrong. But it wasn't just that they were doing things that God saw was wrong. It says later on in the book of Judges, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So, they've stopped seeing what God's heart is. They've stopped seeing what God's will is. They've stopped recognizing the story that they were told to remember about the God who brought them out of Egypt and gave them a law and gave them the Ten Commandments as they move further and further away from God. Now, we can see that in our own culture as well. It's not just that people are doing wrong things. It's that things that break God's heart, people begin to believe that they're right, and the culture moves away from God. And into that situation, God sends Samson. He's the Jewish Hercules, as it were. But I'll warn you if you go and read chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, as I hope you will, you might not want to read them to your young children. Because if this story is read as it is in the Bible, it is definitely certificate 15. In fact, it might be certificate 18 because it's a story of a guy who does everything wrong. He is supposed to be one who God sets apart from his birth, as we've seen. He's supposed to live as a Nazarite, which the book of Deuteronomy says is someone set apart from God, who's not to drink, not to cut their hair, so that they can be completely different and their whole life, be set apart to live for God. And yet, as you read the story, you find here's Samson, he marries a Philistine, he consorts with prostitutes. He gets more and more violent, not just violent in defeating Israel's enemies, but getting violent because he's got a violent temper. He becomes a type, type of a guy who kills on a whim. He's a killer, he destroy, and he's destroyed in the end by his own libido. That's the story of Samson. He lives his life doing what is right in his own eyes. But here's the paradox. A man who is called by God, who is given huge gifts by the Holy Spirit, who is set apart for a purpose before he's born, as we've seen in this passage. And yet, he's a dreadful, compromised oaf of a man. I was reading the commentary and it described him as an oversexed buffoon. That's a summary of who he is. How do we grapple with that? Surely we read the Bible to read about noble people whose example we can be inspired by and we can follow. Not this crazy, mad killer who God is using. Which way is it? And if that's difficult in in, in the days written, it's difficult in our own culture as well because we live in a culture which morally seems to be very black and white. You're either a good person or you're canceled. You're either with it or you're not with it. You're either a hero or you're a fool. One minute our culture builds people up and says, Here, here's an example, here's a celebrity, here's someone to follow, here's someone that may have just acted in some movie, will hang on their every word of wisdom and morality, and then the next minute it decides that this person that you thought was a hero is no use anymore, let's pull their statue into the sea and cancel them. That's how our society is. You're good or you're bad. If you said the wrong thing somewhere, we don't want to hire you anymore. But you see, the Bible, and this is the interesting thing, doesn't paint in moral black and whites. You think it would, but it doesn't. It deals with the greys and the people that are good and not so good. Think about that. We spoke about it a little bit in the beginning, but think about the biblical heroes, the people who even the book of Hebrews says are up there as the examples of faith. You might think about Noah. Noah, with that terrific faith that built an ark in the middle of the desert, you know the story, but do you know how the story of Noah ends? He gets blind drunk and does some unspeakable things. Or we can think of Abraham, that great example of faith at age 70, setting out for a new land, going to have a family and all the rest of it. But then he's using his concubine to have a family, and then he goes down to Egypt, and Pharaoh fancies his wife, so he says, oh, she's not my wife, you can sleep with her, that's all right, leave me alone. What type of guy is this? Or we can think of Jacob. Jacob, who, what does he do? Dresses up as his brother to deceive his dad to steal the birthright. Or we can think of David, and we could go on and on and on. The Bible paints the brokenness of every figure, even the ones that we can learn a lot from. And here's the message, and it is deeply encouraging. God chooses deeply compromised people and God sticks with them long after we'd have written them off and that is amazing grace and I find that really encouraging and so that's the story of Samson chapter 13 is where it begins and it begins with the story of the miraculous birth God bringing a saving figure now it may be even if you haven't read this that I was reading it and you're thinking, I've sort of heard this story before. Woman can't have children. Angel shows up. Woman has children. All this promise of what's going to happen to the future. You see the pattern? You might think of Hannah, and along comes Samuel. Or you might think of Sarah, and along comes Isaac. Or you might think of Rebecca, and along comes Joseph. Or you might think of Elizabeth, and along comes John the Baptist. Or you might think of Mary, and along comes Jesus. And that, in a sense, is a reminder that all these dark things that we might see about Samson, but God is working out his purposes in this, a pattern of salvation. It might be that Samson isn't a great saving figure. In fact, it will say that, well, he'll sort of start delivering Israel. That's the word that this chapter uses. Yeah. Yeah. Because God's pattern will carry on until an angel comes to a woman who delivers a son who will carry to completion God's saving plan. And that obviously is Jesus himself. But you know, whatever Samson lacks in moral fiber he has in this, he's got a great mom. <laughs> and in one sense, if you look for a hero in this story, it's not the big strong man. It's this woman. This remarkable mum. She doesn't even get named in the text. Her husband does, and he's useless. But this remarkable mum. Her husband, we, we know his name because it's Manoah, and he's clueless. If you picked up what's going on in the story, the angel says, Samson's to be born, he's to be a deliverer, he's to deliver as a Nazarite. Now, we struggle to remember what a Nazarite is, but. The woman obviously knows, and she would have known that because it says it in the book of Deuteronomy. God told Moses about all of this, and as he gave Moses a pattern for bringing children up, and he he gave the Ten Commandments, and he gave the law, and he he told about the Passover that had been passed on the generations. Noah, uh, sorry, Moses had been instructed to pass down to the children of Israel how they'd bring up the next generation. And what does Manoah say? Uh, I'm going to have a baby, uh, but the angel hasn't told me how to bring him up. I need some parenting lessons. And you can just imagine the frustration as as his wife says, "Well, I I know what it's about because God's Word tells us how to bring up children to, to know and love the Lord and to know that they are delivered by the Lord who brought us out of slavery in Egypt. It says it all in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they've forgotten because the culture has moved so far from it, and the husband is a complete idiot. He doesn't know any of this stuff. He doesn't know how to bring up children in in a godly way, and all he wants to do is sacrifice goats. That's his obsession, and the angel says, almost with a a lot of impatience, "Oh, man, just listen to your wife. Now, there's good advice if ever there was any. Just go and listen to your wife. She's got it. She's got it, But there's the riddle. How can a faithful God carry on using an unfaithful people in his plan of salvation? And it gives me hope, even as I struggle with it. Hope for myself that God doesn't give up on feckless, stupid people who live their own way. And hope for those around me, because God is the God always of second chances. See, we sort of get the idea of grace when it talks about people who do bad things and God gives them a second chance and they live a different way. The harder thing to realize is that grace is also about those who struggle continually to live in God's way and need forgiveness and second and third and fourth and fifth chances all the time. Even as I continually blow it, God doesn't Give up on me. Let me give you an example. A few years ago with my congregation, then I was preaching on the book of Jonah. And uh, you know the story of Jonah very well. Um, but as I was preaching on it, I decided I'd recommend a book. And so I, on the book of Jonah. So I got a book which I, I really liked, and I said to folk buy a copy of this book and read it. It's called Surprise by Grace. God's Relentless Pursuit of Rebels, and it's all about finding grace in in the book of Jonah. And it's written by a guy called, I I can't pronounce this, Chulian Chavidogen. And somebody's going to tell me I've got my, my languages wrong later. But why he's famous is because he is Billy Graham's grandson. Billy Graham's grandson wrote this book. Here's the problem. A few months after I'd recommended this book to everybody and we sold a whole lot of copies and people went away and read it. This guy was sacked as a pastor. And he was sacked as a pastor because he'd had an affair and he'd lied about it, and then he did a second affair and lied about it too. And his church (coughs) cancelled him. Worthless. Can I recommend this book to anybody now? Should I? Is anything it says worth anything? Because here's the thought as I read this, this guy was probably having an affair as he wrote the blooming book. But think about the story of Jonah. Jonah ran away from the Lord, got swallowed by a whale, and got a second chance, and went to Nineveh as a preacher. But that's not where the story of Jonah ends. Because in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, we find Jonah preaching in Nineveh, preaching in a way that God uses to turn a whole town around and to come to the Lord. But one of the things that we learn about Jonah at that point is that Jonah hated the people he was preaching to. He didn't want God to show them grace. He wanted God to send them all to hell. Now, I don't know you know much about preachers, but frankly, if you're preaching to your congregation and you can't stand them and hope they all go to hell, it's not a great place to be a minister, is it? By the way, that's not how I feel. Well, not always. No, not at all. My point is this. Jonah has to be the worst pastoral minister there ever was. But God used Jonah while he was still feeling like that to turn a whole town around. Why is that? Because the book of Jonah is not really about Jonah, is it? It's about God and His grace, and grace does that remarkable thing. So, maybe God can use this book written by this screw-up pastor to actually tell us something about grace. Maybe God can use a sermon by a continuing screwed-up pastor to tell people something about grace. The grace of God is patient. The grace of God is long-term. And the grace of God is greater than my patience with myself or with other Christians. The grace of God does not write people off. Judges may be going down in that cycle of brokenness, but God is playing a long game. The saviors that are sent, the judges, may get worse and worse, but God is going to send in that whole biblical picture prophets that will follow them, kings after that, and all of this pointing forward to his one act of salvation, the one perfect hero, the one perfect deliverer, Jesus Christ. And that's why we don't give up. We don't give up on ourselves because God does not. He keeps showing grace. And by the way, we don't give up on other Christians because God is showing grace to them as well. And it's one of the reasons I don't give up on the Church of Scotland. I'll say this, not because I'm going to tell you the Church of Scotland's got some wonderful redeeming qualities that you hadn't noticed, but because I believe in a wonderful, redeeming, gracious God. And that's the basis of all that I do. So, what's the lessons? Well, first of all, I'm going to say this, don't have heroes. Don't have heroes. It's a human propensity, isn't it, to put things up on a pedestal and say, that's the example that I'm going to try to emulate, whether it's a sportsman, a celebrity, a biblical character, whatever it is, don't have heroes. Because when you have heroes, what you will find is that they let you down time and time again. Even if you've got godly people that you admire, and that's a good thing to have, by the way, as we read Christian biographies and see what God's done in people's life, the thing that you should put on the pedestal is the grace of God that's at work there. And the thing that you should look at in a godly life is the way that it points to Jesus and not to itself. The church has gone so wrong when we have put people up on pedestals, preachers, evangelists, leaders, and then we found out That they were fallen the whole time and the Word of God could have told them that. You will be failed by other Christians. Pastors will let you down. Elders will disappoint you. Church structures will get petty and stupid and caught up in all the wrong things. Don't let that surprise you because the Bible is not surprised by it either. But if you see that God works through broken people then first of all, you won't get disappointed and hurt to the same degree. But secondly, you will be given the grace to forgive, to heal, not to write off, because you recognize that's what God is doing with these broken things around you. Let God's grace liberate you from bitterness and judging and condemning others, and let it liberate you from writing of yourself as well. You know, people will come to me in churches sometimes, and they will say things like, Alistair, this has happened to me in church. It shouldn't happen in church, should it? We shouldn't have to put up with that. I shouldn't get treated like that. And there's a bit of me who wants to say, you're absolutely right, what has happened is not acceptable. But when you say to me, this shouldn't happen in church, I'm left reading a Bible and saying, but the Bible tells me on every page that it will happen in church. Because God is calling and using compromised, broken people. And the solution to that isn't to try to engineer a perfect church. The solution to that is have a church that is filled with grace and forgiveness. So as we recognize how much we've been forgiven, we show that to other people too. And yes, Then together, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, we try to put right what is wrong. But we do it with the realism that the Bible shows and the knowledge of the power of the grace of God. So today, two things. If you feel like a screw-up spiritually, the Bible says, yeah, you are. (laughs) I am. But God works with screw-ups. It's the only people he's ever worked with. And the second thing is if you look at the church and the people around you and think they're screw-ups, let it point to the grace that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the plan of God that is working through the ages for the salvation of all people to make all things new. Amen. Amen.